We're reading this morning from Jeremiah, two different passages. I'm going to start in chapter 1 from the New American Standard. Chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, because I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Verse 17. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Now moving to Jeremiah 15, starting in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They, for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would grant us to hear from you today. As Tom preaches your word to us, pray that you would give him the things you want him to say and work in our hearts that we hear and receive and are willing to obey and do obey your word, Father. Give us the lessons to follow you, Father. Give us the lessons to listen to people who bring us your word, Father, that we might hear and obey and know you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. We're in the third of three messages on the, with the essential theme of three approaches to the Word of God and three outcomes in the book of Jeremiah. And the first two that we looked at over the last couple of weeks are the bad approaches. <laughs> the first was King Jehoiakim and the disaster of fearlessly discarding God's Word. Last week, we considered King Zedekiah and the calamity of expecting God's help while ignoring God's Word. This week, we get to the good one, and that's the prophet Jeremiah, the great cost and greater blessing of faithfully heeding and proclaiming God's Word. If you've been with us through this study, you've gotten to know this man Jeremiah quite a bit over this period of time. And as is the case in any Bible book in which there's a there's a a servant of God who's kind of in focus, you get really attached to him over time. If you go through the, if you go through the Pentateuch, by the end of it, you really know Moses pretty well in a lot of ways. Jeremiah is an amazing 
uh, person, not because of anything in him, but because of what God did in him and through him to accomplish his will. And that's that's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to examine the commission, the cost, and the blessing that God set before Jeremiah, starting when he was a very young man. Chapter 1 tells us that while he was still a youth, meaning probably a teenage boy, God commissioned him to be his messenger. In verse 10, God tells Jeremiah that he appointed him, quote, over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. It's quite an assignment for a teenage boy. God told Jeremiah that he would put his own words in Jeremiah's mouth and he would use him to proclaim those words to kings and nations. For the next 40 years of his life, God held Jeremiah to that solemn task. Throughout the reigns of the last five kings of Judah, beginning with Josiah, Jeremiah faithfully proclaimed every word that God told him to proclaim. And in the process, he witnessed firsthand the fulfillment of warning after warning after warning that had come to the kings and the people of Judah through Jeremiah's own lips. He got to see those things actually transpire. He beheld the deaths of countless fellow Judahites to the sword, to famine, to pestilence. He witnessed the fall of one city after another in in Judah, in the northern part of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And with the fall of each city, there were more Judahites taken into captivity. He witnessed that, that exile over a period of about ten years of most of the Judahites until all that was really left were those that Nebuchadnezzar thought were of little consequence. And he left them in the city of Jerusalem and a couple of other towns. Finally, Jeremiah witnessed firsthand the Chaldean army's relentless siege of the city of Jerusalem that lasted 18 months. And it was brutal. And it ended in the destruction of the city and the destruction of the temple of Yahweh inside the city. And it ended with the exile of Judah's king and of what little was left of Judah's people. All of those things happened exactly as God prophesied that they would happen through the, through the mouth of this young man and through the prophets who had come before him. Now Jeremiah would not live to see the gracious restoration that God had promised through him, but he faithfully spoke those words to Judah as well. That's the, that's the heart of the commission that God gave to Jeremiah. The personal cost to Jeremiah to keep that assignment was enormous by any measure. And the more time you spend in this book, the more you come to realize just how exceedingly difficult this commission was for this man who started out as a very young man. Speaking without compromise, every word that God told him to speak brought upon Jeremiah fierce animosity and betrayal from everyone from kings and officials down to his own extended family and friends. It was not the pagan Babylonians 
that oppressed and persecuted Jeremiah. It was his own people who were supposed to be the covenant people of God, who were supposed to be the ones that wanted to hear what God had to say. And with amazing consistency, that's how things play out in the Bible when it comes to God's prophets, is it not? It's it's not fundamentally those who have nothing to do with the knowledge of God who persecute the prophets of God. It's those who are supposed to be listening. Those who are supposed to be His people. And the great culmination of that is with the prophet par excellence. The, the perfect prophet, Jesus. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. That's John 1.11. Jeremiah was falsely accused over and over. He was accused of seeking the harm of his own people rather than their well-being. When in reality, he was one of the only ones in the midst of the Judahites who actually cared about their real well-being. He was accused of treason. Of siding, siding with Judah's enemy to the destruction of his own people. He was accused by other prophets in Judah of being a false prophet, of speaking on behalf of God that which God had not said. And along with the deep emotional pain of constant rejection and betrayal from his own people, Jeremiah's faithful proclamation of God's Word brought upon him very great physical suffering and constant threats against his life. The most powerful men in Judah repeatedly demanded that Jeremiah stop prophesying in the name of Yahweh. And when he didn't, when he continued to say what God told him to say, they relentlessly sought to end his life. Chapter 11, verse 21 tells us that even the people of Jeremiah's own hometown of Anathoth, a priestly community, sought to kill him. In chapter 26, the priests and prophets of Judah gathered one day in the temple when Jeremiah was speaking God's Word and they surrounded him. And they said to him, you must die. When the princes of Judah came to see what all the commotion was about, the same prophets and priests called out publicly and they they said, a death sentence for this man. Jeremiah, for he has prophesied against this city as you princes have heard with your own ears. By the way, that should sound very familiar. Who was accused of prophesying against the temple of Yahweh? Jesus. When Jeremiah heard those exceedingly threatening words, (laughs) did he stop saying what God had told him to say? So he could, you know, Lived to speak another day? Did he, did he, uh, determine to rethink his delivery? So it, 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 he would come across as more sensitive, more caring, uh, more tolerant. You know, the way so many people who call themselves Christians today are telling us that we need to do with our message? Did Jeremiah adjust his message to improve the response he was getting? Absolutely not. That same day that they surrounded him and and called out, this man must die, 
Jeremiah said to the priests, the prophets, the princes, and the people, Yahweh sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of Yahweh your God, and Yahweh will change his mind about the misfortune that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants. For truly, Yahweh has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Does that sound like an adjusted message? Jeremiah's uncompromising words on that day provoked sufficient fear in some who were in that multitude so that for a brief time the mob resolved not to kill him. It's fascinating if you read that passage in chapter 26 because they remembered, the mob remembered that in the days of King Hezekiah, a prophet named Micah of Morasheth, the same Micah, who wrote the book of Micah that we find in the Old Testament, had pronounced the same kinds of fierce judgments against Judah from the hand of God that Jeremiah was now pronouncing. Hezekiah, the king at that time, had listened to the prophet. He had listened to the Word of God through Micah. And he had called out to God to deliver Judah. And God had relented of the judgment that he had proclaimed through that faithful prophet. In the days of King Hezekiah, the Assyrian army under the command of King Sennacherib sought to come in and and take over Judah and Jerusalem. You know what happened to that army? God killed 185,000 of them in their sleep in one night. That's That's what happens when God's people call out to God. The reprieve for Jeremiah in chapter 26 didn't last very long. In fact, in the second half of that same chapter, we find that King Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at that time, had already put another prophet named Uriah to death in Jeremiah's day for saying the same things that Jeremiah was now saying. In fact, the only reason that Jeremiah survived and that King Jehoiakim didn't kill him because he was trying to The only reason that Jeremiah survived is there's this man named Ahikam who is the son of Shaphan, a scribe, and Ahikam hid Jeremiah from the king. Now I'm going to just give you a little teaser here. Pay careful attention in the book of Jeremiah to the sons of Shaphan because Shaphan was the scribe in the days of King Josiah who read the rediscovered book of the law found in the temple to the king resulting in one of the greatest revivals in the history of Judah. One of his sons now protects Jeremiah. And in in chapter 40, we're going to meet another of his sons, a guy named Gedaliah. With every new threat, Jeremiah continued to proclaim all that God had given him to say without compromise, without adjustment, And if any of us think that Jeremiah's obedience to God's commission was sort of a slam dunk for him, that it was easy for him, we need to, we need to read this book a lot more carefully. Because 
The book of Jeremiah, like all of the Bible, is brutally honest about both the struggles and the sins of those whom God powerfully uses. And Jeremiah was no exception. He struggled mightily at times to understand why God was requiring such things of him and why things were going the way they were going. The opening chapter of the book tells us that from the get-go, Jeremiah didn't consider himself qualified. Chapter 1, verse 6, he said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Sounds like Moses. He didn't understand why God would have him call a people to repent if they weren't going to repent. He didn't understand why his own delight in the words of God brought upon him such isolation and loneliness and rejection at the hands of his own people, even his own family. He felt at times that God Himself had deceived and abandoned him. In Jeremiah 15, verses 16-18, through 18, there's, this, there's this piercing passage in which Jeremiah just bears his heart to God and he says, He says, God, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart for I have been called by your name, O Yahweh, God of armies. I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone. For you filled me with indignation. Why has my pain been perpetual and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? And then listen. Jeremiah says to God, Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unreliable? In Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, Jeremiah cries out again to God and he says, O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. He's accusing the God of the universe of deceiving him. He says, you have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud and I proclaim violence and destruction. Nobody wants to hear that. He says, because for me the word of Yahweh has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. When Jeremiah said those words to God, he was speaking from the heart, but his heart at that point was sinning. And immediately after that, God God calls him to repent. And then God makes promises to him about how mightily useful he's going to be if he does. If he just turns back to God. If he just trusts God in spite of everything that he sees, everything that he feels, every perception that he has. If he just trusts the Word of God, God says, I will use you beyond anything you can imagine. Did the depth of that pervasively difficult struggle in Jeremiah's heart cause him to abandon his assignment? No, it did not. One of the most amazing things to me about the man Jeremiah is that he struggles more than many of God's servants in the Bible, but he never stops doing what God told him to do. And here's why. It's one of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible to me. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Jeremiah said, but if I say, he says to God, if I say I will not remember him 
or speak any more in His name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. Jeremiah could not hold in what God had given him to speak. He could not. Through all of Jeremiah's seemingly endless hardship and oppression and persecution and deep loneliness, Jeremiah continued to speak every word that God had given him to speak. The fire in Jeremiah's soul that drove him to keep his commission, even when his own eyes and ears told him that it was foolishness to do so, that fire came from God. That's because for all who belong to God, God graciously enables what He requires. For us who belong to Him through faith in Jesus Christ, that enablement comes in the form of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The writer of the Word of God, the author, comes to dwell within us. And He is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. And guys, there's no resisting what He is at work to do in us. We might push back. We might, like Jeremiah, have times where we, where we, we are even despondent. But God is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure and He doesn't quit. Talked about the commission, the cost. Let's talk about the blessing. God's greatest glory will always be His people's greatest blessing. The first facet of God's rich blessing upon Jeremiah that I want us to consider is the first one that God promised to Jeremiah in the first chapter of the book, and that's the blessing of miraculous usefulness. Miraculous usefulness. I'm going to turn this off because we're going to stay on this blessing thing for a while. The blessing of usefulness. Uh, When God first commissioned Jeremiah... He promised to put his own words in this teenage boy's mouth. And he says, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Now let me ask you, imagine yourself for a moment as a teenage boy hearing those words from Almighty God. God promised to use Jeremiah in ways that he couldn't even imagine. Things in ways that you can bet scared him to death when those words came to him from God. Those who did listen to God's word through Jeremiah in his own day were saved from death. They were blessed and cared for by God. They, they voluntarily went into exile to Babylon where God took care of them, just like he took care of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. And and at that time, fed them manna from heaven and made the shoes on their feet not wear out for 40 years and gave them water from rocks in a desert. Not just a little, but rivers of water. See, God told them, if you'll just do what I'm telling you, if you'll accept this corrective judgment from me, if you'll go into exile, I'll take care of you there in Babylon and in, in my time, I'll bring you back. And those who listened, those who listened were delivered and protected and cared for by the living God. God used Jeremiah for very great good, but by the time most of the events that we're seeing in these latter chapters unfolded, there was hardly anybody listening to him anymore. 
If we stop and think for a moment, though, we'll realize that Jeremiah's miraculous usefulness in the hands of God is still going on. Right? Here we sit 2,600 years later, and God is revealing things to our hearts about Himself and His dealings with His people and His dealings with us through the words that were written down by Jeremiah because he kept his commission. Brothers and sisters, that's usefulness. The second aspect of blessing that God promised to Jeremiah is protection. Usefulness and protection. When he first commissioned Jeremiah in chapter 1, he said, Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to these, these powerful people all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land. They will fight against you. They will fight against you. But they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You remember when Jesus said to Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Second Corinthians 10 says that, that the, we do battle not with the implements of, of the flesh, but with weapons that are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We take every thought captive and we destroy, we tear down every lofty speculation and everything that is raised up against the knowledge of God. God says that's what He's still doing through His church right now. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you to deliver you, declares Yahweh. And by the way, it doesn't mean they won't kill you. It does mean they won't overcome you. God told Jeremiah he would be opposed by the most powerful men in Judah. Kings, officials, priests, prophets, as well as by the rank and file, the people as a whole. That's exactly what Jeremiah experienced every day of his life for 40 years. On more than one occasion, he was at the end of his rope, a couple of times literally. And as we've seen, there were times when he cried out to God in confusion and disillusionment. There were times when he sinfully accused God of deceiving and abandoning him. But God did not abandon him. Ever. And when he did, when he did accuse God of abandoning him, God simply called out to him and said, just turn back to me, Jeremiah, and you'll see. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't moved. I haven't changed. Keep doing what I've commissioned you to do. In chapter 15, God said to him right after, right after he said, God, you have deceived me. Listen to this. God said to him, therefore, thus says Yahweh, if you return, that's what the word repent means. If you turn back to me, then I will restore you. Before me, you will stand. And if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. They for, listen to this, they for their part, may turn to you, but as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze, and though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares Yahweh. It's exactly what he said to him in chapter 1. See, he's saying, I haven't changed. 
So I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked and I will redeem you from the grasp of the violent. (laughs) It is God's forbearance toward us that keeps us useful. There are times when we are faithless, but God is faithful. And that's marvelous because that's how we stay in the fight. That, that's, that's how he keeps drawing us back. He is, he is the one who forbears. And he is at work in us all, all the time to will and to work for his good pleasure. And it, it, it's his forbearance that keeps us useful and it's his protection that keeps us in the battles until the day of our race is over. By the divine genius of God, there's a vivid and powerful imagery woven throughout this book that has to do with cisterns, and I'm going to spend a little time on that. Cisterns, that's, that's not the female version of brethren. I know, I've used that before. I'll try to stop doing, stop repeating bad jokes. Uh, cisterns are mentioned nine times in this book. Isaiah is the only other book of the Bible that uses the word cistern more than once, and it only uses it twice. It's a big deal in this book. A cistern was a deep hole that was dug in the ground to catch rainwater for drinking, for irrigation, for various things. The unfolding of all that God has to say about cisterns through Jeremiah vividly highlights what's going on in this book, especially in the contrast between Jeremiah and King Zedekiah, who of all the kings is the one most in focus in in the book of Jeremiah. In chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, God said, Has a nation changed, through Jeremiah, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit, for all these false idols. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Shudder, be very desolate, declares Yahweh, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to dig out for themselves waterless cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. During the reign of King Zedekiah, Jeremiah the prophet was twice thrown into a cistern. The first time it was bad, the second time it was a lot worse. The first time is recorded in chapter 37. A captain from the tribe of Benjamin arrests Jeremiah when he comes outside the city of Jerusalem for a little while after when the, the siege has been lifted for a time. And this, this captain of the Benjamite army arrests Jeremiah, accuses him of treason, accuses him of siding with the invading army at, at, against his own people. He beats Jeremiah and he throws him into a place which literally translated, is the house of the pit. He throws him into a large waterless cistern that's being used as a dungeon for prisoners. On that first occasion, it was King Zedekiah himself who sent his men to rescue Jeremiah from that cistern and to bring him back to the king's palace to meet the king, to meet with the king. King Zedekiah at that point, no doubt thinking that because he had rescued Jeremiah, that he had earned some points with Jeremiah's God, says to Jeremiah, what's the word from God? And Jeremiah knew very well that King Zedekiah had the the ability and the authority and maybe the inclination to throw him right back in that cistern or just to kill him. 
If there was ever a time for Jeremiah to adjust his message or his delivery, this was it. But when the king asked if there was a word from Yahweh, Jeremiah simply said, there is. You will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Does that sound like he adjusted his message? The second time Jeremiah was thrown into a wretched hole in the ground is recorded in chapter 38, and it's worse. This time, officials of Judah have been given permission directly by King Zedekiah to do whatever they want to with Jeremiah. And they've just, and when they asked for the permission to do that, they said to Zedekiah, we're, we're planning to kill him. They take Jeremiah, they lower him into a really deep cistern with ropes. But this time, the bottom of the cistern is filled with mud. Lots of mud. And it says Jeremiah sank down into the mud. By this point, the siege of the city by the Chaldean army had produced a severe famine. There was no food coming into the city and what was in it had run out. While the king and his household still had food to eat, you could be sure that nobody was going to be feeding a prisoner in a mud pit. Now, if you're submerged in mud, let's say up to your waist or higher, and if the mud is drying out over time, what eventually happens? The mud becomes so dense that getting you out of it is a seriously difficult proposition. And in fact, getting you out of it could mean bodily injury to you. Chief slave in the king's house named Ebed-Melech, translated slave of the king, came to King Zedekiah and begged him to let him rescue Jeremiah from that pit. He told him there's no more food and he's starving to death in that mud. Will you let me save him? And King Zedekiah, who had, in effect, given the order to throw him in the pit indirectly, authorized his slave to, to, to rescue him. And so the Ebed-Melech, an amazing guy, he takes, he gathers up rags and, and worn out clothes to pad between the ropes and Jeremiah's arms. And he, he gets 30 men and he goes and he, drops the ropes down to Jeremiah and gets him all padded, and then he very carefully, very slowly lifts him up out of that cistern so that he doesn't hurt him. And then the king meets with Jeremiah again. And as before, he seems to be thinking that because he rescued Jeremiah after, you know, kind of letting people try to execute him, that he would get a better word from God. Jeremiah says to the king at that point, if I tell you what God is saying, first of all, you're probably going to kill me. And secondly, you're not going to listen. And, and King Zedekiah assures him that he will protect him. He will take care of him. Jeremiah already knows how good that promise is. Knowing that his life could easily be forfeited for speaking God's word yet again, that's exactly what Jeremiah does. He speaks God's word. And I love this because this is the final episode involving Jeremiah and Zedekiah and the cisterns and the mud. And listen. 
These are the words that King, that, that Jeremiah speaks to King Zedekiah in chapter 38. He says to him, please obey Yahweh in what I am saying to you, that it may go well with you and you may live. But if you keep refusing to go out, in other words, to give yourself up to the Chaldeans and be taken into exile, this is the word which Yahweh has shown me. Behold, all of the women who have been left in the palace of the king of Judah are going to be brought out to the officers of the king of Babylon. And those women will say, Those women will say, your close friends, Zedekiah, have misled and overpowered you. Listen, while your feet were sunk in the mire, they turned back. They will also bring out all your wives and your sons to the Chaldeans, and you yourself will not escape from their hand, but will be seized by the hand of the king of Babylon, and the city will be burned with fire. Here's what's going on there. The women who had served in the palace of King Zedekiah, Jeremiah says, when, when the city falls, they're going to mock you publicly, Zedekiah. As if scolding the king personally, they would remind Zedekiah that the same prophets and priests and officials who had insisted that he not give up the fight against Nebuchadnezzar would do the opposite of what they had told him to do. When At the last minute, they would give up. They would, they would give themselves over into captivity and it would go well with them. Well, Zedekiah, in the meantime, it would not go well with him. And, and the words of these women are, are vivid. Zedekiah, King Zedekiah, while your feet were sunk in the mire, your false counselors turned around. You see the, the way this image has just been, has gone from beginning to end here. God says through Jeremiah, Judah, you have, you have thrown away the fountain of living waters and carved in the ground, you've hollowed out on the ground these cisterns that, that are broken and they cannot hold water. And you think that's going to satisfy you. And then twice, Jeremiah himself is thrown into cisterns by the king. And while Jeremiah was literally physically sunk in mud at the bottom of a pit, God was still powerfully using him to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow all who were were arrayed against God and His Word. And that's a pattern throughout the Bible, is it not? God used Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego powerfully in the life of the same pagan king he was now using to judge and preserve his people, Nebuchadnezzar, And God used those three young men most mightily, not when things were going kind of well for them, but when things were going the very worst for them. When the king had cast them into a fiery furnace with the intention of turning them to ash. That's when God made His greatest point with Nebuchadnezzar through those three young men. Because... They weren't even singed by the fire. The guys who threw them in the fire died. And they weren't touched. And there was a fourth one in the fire like the Son of Man dancing in the fire with them. That's Jesus. God used Daniel in the life of King Darius most piercingly, not when Daniel enjoyed the favor of the king, but when he had by the king's order been tossed into a lion's pit to be shredded to pieces. The lions didn't touch him. 
Over and over in the Bible, the greatest victories that God accomplishes in the hearts of men tend to happen when His chosen ones appear to be suffering the greatest defeats. With emphasis on the words appear to be. The preeminent example of that is the cross of Jesus. Now shouldn't that tell you and me something about how God intends to bring about our greatest usefulness for His kingdom? You think it's going to happen when things are going easily and smoothly? On the other side of this imagery of waterless cisterns is the pathetic King Zedekiah, directly responsible for both of Jeremiah's close encounters with waterless cisterns. But in the eyes of God, it was he, it was Zedekiah who had forsaken the fountain of living waters to carve out for himself himself broken cisterns cisterns that hold no water. It was he whose feet had sunk deep into dense mud so that he was trapped, he was rendered useless and powerless, and he was doomed to fall into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and be carried away into captivity as a severe punishment not from Nebuchadnezzar but from the living God. By the way, Jeremiah was never in any danger whatsoever from the Babylonians. He was never in any danger from Zedekiah or Jehoiakim. When the city fell to the Chaldeans, Zedekiah was brought before, King Zedekiah was brought before Nebuchadnezzar, who executed all of his sons in front of his eyes and then put his eyes out and then carried him away into captivity. Jeremiah, on the other hand, was set free. A man named Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's personal guard said to Jeremiah in chapter 40 at the beginning, he said, Behold, I am freeing you today, Jeremiah, from the change which are on your hands, which we didn't put there. If you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come on. I'll look after you. I'll take care of you. But if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, that's fine. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. So, In the war of the waterless cisterns, who won? Jeremiah or Zedekiah? I want to talk a little bit. I know I'm I'm going over here, but give me just another couple of minutes. I want to talk about, uh, about living like Jeremiah. How does all this affect the way you and I live? (laughs) Maybe a better question is how does it not? Um, here's an exceedingly reliable fact. If you care most about the actual well-being of the people around you, In other words, if you care about how they respond to God and about their relationship to God more than about any temporal, earthly, fleeting blessing that they might experience, you can count on this. Many of them will accuse you of not caring about them at all. They will accuse you of hating them. You'll be accused of seeking their harm and not their well-being. Some will accuse you of despising your country your family, your friends, and even your God. Here's another reliable fact. When we as God's people are faithfully speaking God's Word, we do not say things like, here's what I think you should do. We don't even say, here's what I believe you should do. You know what we say? Thus says the Lord. That's what the prophets said over and over and over and over. Thus says Yahweh, your Creator. He has spoken. 
They declare what God has declared to be true. We declare what God has declared to be true and what that truth requires of all who hear it. All who hear it, whether they want to listen or not. And you can count on this as well. When you tell other people that they are not the arbiters of truth, that the God who made us has spoken and removed all guesswork and that we are all accountable to every word that He has revealed, the only people who will find that to be a pleasant thing are the ones who believe it. And they will be few. Most people will consider you a fool or a mortal enemy for saying such a thing to them. That's the way this works, guys. Our message to the lost is not consider Jesus. Our message is God has spoken through prophets and apostles in many portions and in many ways. And in these last days, He has spoken through His Son whom He has appointed heir of all things. And He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. And if you don't believe in Him, if you don't trust in Him, you will be eternally condemned. We don't say to people, try Jesus. We say to people, abandon every other trust and trust in Jesus Christ alone and be saved forever. Just think for a minute, how will you and I respond when proclaiming God, proclaiming what God has clearly said gets us labeled as traitors to our own people and nation, gets us labeled by other so-called Christians as traitors to Christ and to the gospel, and gets us arrested and convicted of hate crimes and thrown in prisons? I don't know when that's coming, but I'm pretty sure it's coming. Will we persevere in speaking the truth on behalf of God or will we adjust God's Word to spare ourselves all that grief? When you and I can no longer keep our jobs unless we call evil good and good evil, what will we do? When we can no longer keep our freedom without calling evil good and good evil, what will we do? Many of our brothers and sisters in this world already know exactly what that's like. And our time is coming. No matter what other people do to you or to me for saying what God has said, God's words to Jeremiah still hold true. They, for their part, may turn to you, but you must not turn to them. It's time for us whom the Apostle Paul calls the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, to put up or shut up. And if we, if we speak what God has given us to speak, it's not going to be easy. But God's not going to change the assignment. How we do it, just real quick, how we do it is important. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to speak the truth in humility knowing that we we were once every bit as lost as the most lost person on this earth. We are commanded to order our lives in a manner that adorns rather than contradicts the message that we proclaim living every day in the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And no matter what comes, we never adjust the message and we never stop proclaiming it, no matter what comes. We close with Matthew 10, verses 24 to 28. Jesus said to His disciples, He said, A disciple 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the household Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And beloved, that fierce judge is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one we proclaim no matter what comes. Loving Father, so much to say here. Thank You for this marvelous example and this this humble man, Jeremiah, who just said what You told him to say. Make us like him, we pray. The days are short. It shames me to think of the countless times that I've shrunk back from saying that which the person I was talking to needed to hear above all else. Make us faithful, Father, to proclaim Christ no matter what. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.